إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهديه الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد تريدنا حديث أبو هريرة رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من لم يدع قول الزور والعمل به والجهل فليس لله حاجة في أن يدع طعامه وشرابه رواه البخاري وأبو داود واللفظ له In this narration the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم says that whomsoever does not leave false speech and actions upon it and foolishness, then Allah has no need for that person to leave his food and drink. The one who does not leave the evil false speech and actions upon it and foolishness, then Allah has no need for that person to leave his food and drink. This narration is to highlight that fasting is not simply to experience hunger. Some of the Salaf, they used to mention that a person whose share of fasting is simply to feel hungry and thirsty, then they've not experienced the reality of fasting. There are two types of things that break your fast. There are the physical things like food and drink, المفطرات الحصية, and then you have the non-physical or the the, the second type of things that break your fast, المفطرات المعنوية. The first type, food and drink and intercourse, etc., they break your fast and invalidate it. It doesn't count. The second type of things that impact upon your fast are like the false and evil speech, a person lies, a person backbites, a person is deceitful, a person cheats, a person uh, slanders. All of this type of evil speech, a person gives false testimony. All of that type of evil speech with your tongues. وَالْعَمَلَ بِهِ And acting upon it, acting in evil acting with evil behavior, actions, with uh, uh, deceptive ways, cheating ways, acting in manners that cause corruption, all of the evil actions. And al-jahl, which in this narration means foolishness. These types of things all impact upon your fast. They all break your fast. But what it means is, they don't break your fast in terms of invalidating it. The fast will still count for the day, 
but they break your fast in terms of the reward. So maybe a person fasts, they don't eat, they don't drink, they don't engage in any of those activities that are impermissible when fasting. So their fast is valid for the day. But they've been engaging in the false speech and actions and foolishness. They've been lying all day, they've been swearing all day. They've been backbiting, slandering, talking about people all day. Then at the end of the day, even though your fast counts, you may have no reward left for that day. So you've gone through the hunger and the thirst and the fasting of the whole day, and you've ended up with no reward for the day. Because your evil speech and your evil actions and your foolishness in behavior have taken away the reward for the day. And that's why a person maybe fasts the whole of the month of Ramadan. And then at the end of Ramadan, after all of those 18, 19 hour fasts every day, they've gone through the month, all of the thirst, the hunger, the fatigue, and maybe at the end of it, they have barely anything to show for the reward from Allah. Because all of the reward they could have got for that fasting they've done anyway now has been lost because of their evil speech and behavior throughout the month. That's why this narration now tells you a person who's not going to stop their evil speech and behavior and actions, then Allah has no need for him to leave his food and drink. Meaning that these are things that take away the reward of your fasting. They take away the reward you could have got. So all you're doing is being hungry, being thirsty, you're fasting in that way. But you're not fasting in terms of rectifying your sins. You're not fasting in terms of stopping yourself from doing wrong. And the Salaf, they used to say, the easiest part of fasting is to stop eating and drinking. No food, no drink from Fajr till Maghrib. That's the easiest part of fasting. That isn't a problem. Everybody can stop eating for a day. It's doable. People can manage that. But what is difficult about fasting is to stop your evil speech and actions. To stop yourself from lying as you have become accustomed to. To stop yourself from backbiting as you've become accustomed to. To stop yourself from slandering others, belittling or speaking bad, swearing. Stopping yourself from those actions of sin. That is where the difficulty is. So the Salaf used to say, easiest part of fasting is to not eat and drink. That's not a problem. The difficulty is to rectify yourself and to stop your sins. That is the reality of fasting. Because Allah told us, the fasting, the purpose of it is, لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ So that you may achieve piety. Piety comes with the rectification of yourself, stopping your sins, stopping your wrongs and your shortcomings, and improving yourself and becoming a better servant of Allah. Fulfilling the obedience to Allah, 
This Ramadan is an opportunity. And that's why some of the Salaf they mentioned, some of the scholars they say, Ramadan is certainly a virtuous month. There is no doubt about that. Ramadan is a virtuous and blessed month. However, that isn't in question. What's in question is who from the servants of Allah will benefit from the virtue and the blessing of this month. The fact that it's virtuous isn't in question. The fact that it's blessed isn't in question. What's in question is who will actually benefit from this time, from the virtuousness and the blessing of it. Not everybody will. Who are the ones who will step forward in their worship and rectification and benefit from this blessed time? That's where the question lies. So in this narration you see the Prophet ﷺ telling us, whoever doesn't leave the evil speech and actions and foolishness, then Allah has no need for him to leave his food and drink. Fasting isn't just to leave your food and drink. Fasting is to leave your evil sins, your actions, your behaviors that are not befitting. Then we move on firstly to the issue of cupping. Everybody knows what cupping is, the extraction of blood through the suction process from the body. The cupping, is that cupping, hijama, allowed when you're fasting or not? No, who said no? No. Difference of opinion. So what is the ruling regarding cupping when you are fasting? Take note of these three narrations. We'll try and explain that topic in three brief narrations. You have to take note of them all carefully to understand the conclusion. Narration number one, which happens to be in Al-Bukhari, is the hadith of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma. أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم احتجم وهو محرم واحتجم وهو صائم It says that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم had the cupping done to him whilst he was محرم meaning he was in the process of doing his umrah or hajj he was in the ihram, past the miqat, in the process of doing his umrah or hajj. During that ihram state, he had cupping done. Then the second sentence of the same hadith now says, and on one occasion, he had the cupping done when he was fasting. That's in Bukhari. He had the cupping done when he was in the state of ihram, and on one occasion, he had the cupping done when he was fasting. So, hadith number one, which is in Al-Bukhari, seems to very clearly state that cupping when you are fasting is completely allowed, permissible, no problem, the Prophet ﷺ did it. Hadith number two though, we need all three before we can make a conclusion. Hadith number two of Shaddad ibn Aus, 
رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم مر أو نعم أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أتى على رجل بالبقيع وهو يحتجم في رمضان فقال أفطر الحاجم والمحجوم رواه الخمسة إلا الترمذي وصححه أحمد وابن خزيمة وابن حبان In this narration it mentions that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam walked by a man next to Baqi' the graveyard just at Baqi' he walked past a man there who was getting copped and this was in Ramadan during the day this was during Ramadan during the day the Prophet ﷺ came across this man getting himself cupped from another man. Another man was cupping him. So the Prophet ﷺ, when he saw them, he said, Aftara al-hajimu wal-mahjum. That both the one doing the cupping and the one having done to him, both of their fasts are broken. Both of their fasts are broken. The one doing it and the one having it done to him. So, hadith number two, which is authentic also, indicates that cupping when fasting is absolutely not allowed and it breaks your fast if you do it. So, so far two narrations, both of them seemingly saying the opposite to one another. Narration number three. Hadith number three of Anas ibn Malik. قال أول أول ما كرهت الحجام للصائم أن جعفر بن أبي طالب احتجم وهو صائم فمر به النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فقال أفطر هذان ثم ثم رخص النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم بعد في الحجامة للصائم وكان أنس راوي الحديث وكان أنس يحتجم وهو صائم رواه الدار القطني وقواه This narration now of Anas ibn Malik he says that initially he says at first initially when cupping was impermissible for somebody fasting that was that time when Ja'far ibn Abi Talib was getting cupped whilst he was fasting and the Prophet ﷺ had said to him and the one doing it to him that both of your fasts are broken. So narration number three in its early stages seems to be referencing narration number two. That initially yes, cupping was haram and there's that incident when Ja'far ibn Abi Talib was getting cupped and the Prophet ﷺ told him and the one doing it to him, both of your fasts are broken. But then the narration goes on with an It says, but then after that, after that incident, at some later point, after that, the Prophet ﷺ permitted, allowed cupping to be done for somebody fasting. And Anas, who narrates this hadith, 
himself used to get the cupping done whilst he was fasting. So number three now, this hadith, hadith number three, indicates what? It in a way seems to be bringing together narration number one and two, saying that narration number two is absolutely correct. There was a time when cupping meant your fast was broken and it wasn't allowed. But then it's telling us at a later time after that, a new revelation came saying that cupping doesn't break your fast. That would explain narration number one, that the Prophet ﷺ had the cupping done when he was fasting. It must have been later on when the new revelation came, saying it doesn't break your fast. So basically, hadith number three is using the justification of abrogation. Saying that initially, yes, hadith number two is legitimate. It wasn't allowed. But then afterwards, a new revelation came saying it is allowed. And it doesn't break your fast. And that's hadith number one in Bukhari. That the Prophet ﷺ did it when he was fasting. And hadith number three, Anas used to do it after that. When he realized that the new ruling has come now. That hijama doesn't break your fast. So now looking at those three narrations. Narration number one clearly said it's allowed. The Prophet ﷺ used to do it when fasting. Hadith number two says it's clearly not allowed. Hadith number three says, you're right, it wasn't allowed initially, but then new revelation came saying it is allowed. So now after looking at the three narrations, what is the conclusion? It's not allowed. The man says it's not allowed. Why are you saying it's not allowed? Sahih al-Bukhari Wahtajama wa huwa sa'im Anas ibn Malik Kana yahtajimu wa huwa sa'im And the man gives us the fatwa that it's not allowed still. Go on. So, even then, even then, there is a difference of opinion. Two basic opinions. One opinion saying, cupping does not break your fast. One opinion saying, that it does break your fast. But how come? When the narrations seem to have explained themselves in the end, this is how. Firstly then, the first opinion. We'll go with the opinion that it doesn't break your fast. Opinion number one, that it doesn't break your fast. And that is the opinion of who? Al-Jumhur. Al-Jumhur. Qawlu al-Jumhur. Al-A'imma. Al-Thalatha minhum. Abu Hanifa wa Malik wa Shafi'i. Anna al-Hijama la tufthiru al-Sa'im. The majority you could say Al-Imam Malik, Al-Imam Shafi'i, Al-Imam Abu Hanifa and others, they take the opinion that it doesn't break your fast. What would be their explanation? Just what we've said, everything we just said. The way that it was explained, an abrogation and it wasn't allowed, but then the narration came saying it is allowed. All the explanation we've just given is basically the explanation of the majority of the scholars. They say, yes, you're right. There's a hadith saying it wasn't allowed, but... That was abrogated with the other narration afterwards. And it was allowed in the end. 
And that's why the hadith is in Bukhari saying the Prophet did it. That is the majority of the scholars. And that is possible that abrogation occurs. The revelation, the Quran and the Sunnah, did it all come down in one go at one time? It came down over stages over years. It came down over a period of time. So initially it is evident, it does occur that there used to be a ruling, but then later on in the revelation a new ruling came abrogating uh, abrogating that and giving a new ruling. A, a common example mentioned in Kitab al-Tahara is about the ghusl. The ruling used to be that if intercourse occurs or intimate activity occurs of that nature between the husband and the wife, intercourse included, as long as no ejaculation occurred, then there was no ghusl upon you. Ghusl was only upon you if actual release of fluids occurred. Otherwise, intimate activity, uh, even intercourse, etc., as long as no release of fluids occurred, the initial ruling was there's no ghusl upon you. The hadith it mentions, that the water is only as a consequence of the water. Meaning the water of ghusl is only obliged as a consequence of the water of the release of liquids of ejaculation. So initially that was the ruling. But then we know later on in the sunnah that was abrogated. And then it mentions, When the intimate relations occur even without intercourse, if the private parts touch and they meet, and that contact occurs, and the, the intimate contact of that nature occurs, even without the release of fluids, now upon you is to make the ghusl. Even if no ejaculation occurs, but that intimate activity occurs. So that is an example, and there are many examples. So that's what the majority say. That yes, it wasn't allowed, but then now narrations came afterwards saying it is allowed. That's the majority of the scholars, and that's their explanation basically. But then, Al-Qawl al-Thani, Anna al-Hijama tuftiru al-Sa'im wa la tajuzu lah. That the cupping breaks your fast and it's not allowed. Cupping breaks your fast and it's not allowed. But now they're going to have to give a bit of explanation. How come? So look at what they say. وَهَذَا قَوْلُ الْإِمَامْ أَحْمَدْ وَجَمَاعًا مِنَ الْمُحَدِّثِينَ كإسحاق إسحاق من هو ابن راهية من هو شيخ الإمام البخاري and also ابن خزيمة واختيار شيخ الإسلام ابن تيمية وابن القيم بأن الحجامة تفطر الصائم so look at these names big scholars محدثون they take the opinion that cupping breaks your fast عَمَلًا بِحَدِيثٍ أَفْطَرَ الْحَاجِمُ وَالْمَحْجُومِ Obviously the basis of their argument lies in narration number two where the Prophet had seen those two men and said to them both of your fasts are broken. That is the basis of the evidence they use. And that hadith أَفْطَرَ الْحَاجِمُ وَالْمَحْجُومِ وَهُوَ حَدِيثٌ رَوَاهُ بِضْعَ عَشَرَ صَحَابِيًّا 
عن الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم وهو متواتر أو قريب من التواتر قوي الإسناد that حديث about the prophet seeing the two men and telling them your fasts are broken for cupping one doing it and the other one having it done to him both of your fasts are broken that narration is a very strong narration strong solid chain of narration on top of that it's almost mutawatir narrated by not just one or two companions multiple companions narrated that hadith that the prophet saw the two men and he told them both of your fasts are broken so it's a strong, solid hadith. What's the point of saying that? Because they say that this narration, which is a strong, solid narration, they say you cannot bring along hadith number three, the hadith of Anas ibn Malik, that narration. They say you can't use that narration. لِأَنَّ هَذَا الْحَدِيثِ لَا يَقْوَى عَلَى نَصْخْ حَدِيثِ أَفْطَرَ الْحَاجِمُ الْمَحْجُومِ They say your hadith number three is nowhere near as strong in the chains of narration. It's nowhere near as solid in its authenticity and establishment in its chains compared to hadith number two. Basically therefore saying in terms of the levels of strength, hadith number two is higher up in strength than the hadith of Anas ibn Malik. They say, how can you therefore bring a hadith which is lower down in strength and tell us you're going to use that one to override and to abrogate our hadith which is far stronger than it in its change of narration? Basically, they're saying, if you want to abrogate our narration, then bring us another narration that is as good as it in strength. Bring something as good as our narration in strength and solid in chains of narration to abrogate it and to override it and to wipe it out. Otherwise, you're going to bring us something which is nowhere near the same level of strength as our hadith and you want to tell us we're going to use that to override your hadith? They say, no, we're not going to accept that. And it's a, a point which is a point. In the sciences of hadith, etc., it's a valid point. So they have a point there. They have a point there. They are saying hadith number three isn't strong enough to come and override hadith number two. Okay, that's done. Still, they need to answer another question. The question regarding hadith number one, which was in Al Bukhari, Ihtajama wa huwa sa'im. What are they going to say about that then? With regards to that one, they say, Ajabu an hadith ihtajama wa huwa sa'im bi'anna hadhihi al-lafza ghayr mahfuza. As-sahih annahu ihtajama wa huwa muhrim. Wa amma lafza wa huwa sa'im فَهِيَ غَيْرُ مَحْفُوظَةً وَإِنْ كَانَتْ فِي صَحِيحِ الْبُخَارِ وَلِذَلِكَ تَرَكَهَا الْإِمَامُ مُسْلِمْ وَرَوَاهُ اِحْتَجَمَ وَهُوَ مُحْرِمْ وَتَرَكَ وَهُوَ صَائِمْ لِأَنَّ هَذِهِ الزِّيَادَةَ غَيْرُ مَحْفُوظَةً عَنِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ 
يقول الإمام أحمد هذه الزيادة غلط من الراوي غير محفوظة وتبعه على ذلك كثير من أئمة الحديث على أن هذه الزيادة واحتجم وهو صائم هذه الزيادة غير محفوظة في الحديث وأن المحفوظ احتجم وهو محرم They say basically in a nutshell that the narration in Al-Bukhari had two parts to it. The initial part, the basis of the hadith said the Prophet ﷺ had the cupping done when he was in Ihram. Then there was the second part of the hadith that said and he had the cupping done once when he was fasting. They say the hadith as a hadith the basis of it absolutely legitimate it's in Bukhari but they say the second part of the narration that part is a mistake from the narrator that second part is not from the original hadith they say the original hadith was only the Prophet had the cupping done when he was in ihram full stop this extra sentence and he had the cupping done once when he was fasting they say that extra sentence was a mistake from the narrator he added that on by accident from it was a mistake that's why an imam muslim when he narrated the same hadith in sahih muslim he only narrated the opening section the prophet ﷺ had the cupping done when he was in ihram and an imam muslim left the second part out as did a large number of the scholars of hadith also. You've seen the names there, Al-Imam Ahmed, Ishaq ibn Rahoya, ibn Khuzayma, all of these scholars, ibn Taymiyyah, ibn Al-Qayyim, they all agree that this second sentence is some type of mistake that wasn't part of the original hadith. So they say, yes, the original hadith is in Bukhari, it's legitimate. The Prophet ﷺ had the cupping done when he was in Ihram. But they say the second sentence on that hadith is problematic. That's a mistake from the narrator that is not proven as part of that original hadith. So therefore, they do not accept that second sentence as being legitimate and authentic. So now, there's no evidence left in that narration. The Prophet ﷺ did the cupping when he was in ihram. Ihram, no problem, completely different topic. The fasting part is no longer valid as far as they're concerned. Many of the scholars of hadith, in fact. So that is how they answer, basically. They say that part isn't valid. And as for number three hadith, saying that afterwards it was abrogated, they say, no, that hadith isn't at the level whereby you can use it to override a very strong narration number two. So they don't allow it to override it. They don't accept that. So if they don't accept that, and they don't accept the validity of the second part of the hadith in Bukhari, Therefore, all you're left with is the narration that the Prophet ﷺ saw them and told them, both of your fasts are broken. So you can see why some of the scholars of hadith came to the conclusion that cupping breaks your fast. But the majority of the scholars, they don't accept that. They say, no, the Bukhari hadith, all of it is authentic. And they say, number three, it's good enough to abrogate. And therefore, they come to the conclusion that cupping is allowed. That's your difference there. One point to mention here, why did the Prophet ﷺ say Aftar al-Hajim wal-Mahjum? Al-Mahjum wadih. The one who's getting the cupping done, that's clear. Taking blood out, fasting, broken. 
the one doing the cupping for him, Al-Hajim, why is his fast broken? He's not getting cupping done, he's just doing it for the other guy. The method, what was the method? So nowadays it's done with suction, with pumps and suction. In those days, how was the suction created? With your breath, you suck. So they used to put the cups or the types of cups they used, the, the instruments they used, and then the suction was created with your breath in sucking out and blowing out. Blowing in rather. So when you were doing that to create the suction, obviously the blood is coming out. It may well sometimes end up going down the mouth of the one doing the cupping for him. And therefore risking the fast upon that person too. And therefore it was mentioned that both of their fasts are broken. Because, naam, that is sufficient. Huh? So that is regarding the cupping. Then moving on. An Aisha radiyallahu anha. أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم اكتحل في رمضان وهو صائم رواه ابن ماجة بإسناد ضعيف In this narration it mentions that the Prophet put the kuhl onto his eyes when he was fasting but the narration is weak قال الترمذي لا يصح في هذا الباب شيء There is nothing authentic proven in this regard However, Sheikh Al-Fawzan does go on to talk about medicines generally. Eye drops then. Are eye drops permissible when fasting? Ideally, you should not use them. Ideally, you should not use them. If you're told once a day, then no problem. Do that once a day in the night. But if you have to use them on a regular basis, therefore it's going to come during the day by necessity, then they are allowed. Eardrops, exactly the same again. Ideally, don't use them. If it's once a day, do it in the night. If it has to be at regular intervals, so it's going to be during the day, eardrops are allowed and they don't break your fast. Nose drops, they are not allowed because the nose is a direct inlet into the stomach. So if you take nose drops, then there's a very good likelihood of some of that ending up in the stomach. Eardrops, Sheikh Al-Fawzan says, are, again, ideally you don't use them, but they can be used if necessary. Because it's not directly into the inlet of the stomach as the nose is. Ear and eyes, they do have a connection. And this is noted by people who use eyedrops and eardrops. They themselves have said, I've heard it from them themselves. Some of you who use them now may recognize that too. You put eyedrops into your eyes and you feel the taste in your throat. People who use eye drops themselves have said that. So there is a link from the eyes and the ears, but it's not a direct link. That's why a Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, avoid it. But if necessary, eye and ear drops can be used. Nose cannot because that is direct inlet into the stomach. Injections. Ruling on injections. If it is nutritional in some way, there is a nutritional value to it, then impermissible, you're giving your body nutrients. If there is no nutritional value to it whatsoever in any capacity, then it's allowed. No nutrition going in, therefore it is not in the ruling of food or drink. Extraction of blood. Doctor wants to take a sample of blood from you, what's the ruling? 
Depends on the amount. If it's a small amount, a small syringe, you want to take a, a small amount, your fast is okay, you can carry on. But if it's a large amount, big syringe going in, he wants to fill it up, everything, a big amount of blood going out, then it does become problematic. Then that can lead into the debate of your fast being broken because of the amount of blood exiting from your body. Then we move on. Hadith, oh, uh, asthma, asthma inhalers. What's the ruling on asthma inhalers? Permissible. Asthma inhalers are permissible. And that's the fatwa of Sheikh bin Baz, Sheikh Al-Ithaymeen, Sheikh Ahmed Najmi, many of the scholars, they've given the fatwa that asthma inhalers are permissible, they don't break your fast. Then, Anabi Hurairah radiyallahu anhu qal, qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, man nasiya wa huwa sa'in Nasiyan fala qada'a alayhi wa la kaffara Hadith says, whoever forgets whilst he's fasting and eats or drinks, then let him carry on his fast. For indeed, Allah has fed him and given him that drink. The ruling from the hadith is that when you're fasting, if you genuinely absolutely forget and you eat something or drink something, then you remember afterwards, wait, I was fasting today. Then that doesn't break your fast. If you genuinely forgot and you ate something, you drank something, and then you remembered afterwards you're fasting today, your fast still counts. And you don't have to make it up. Carry on fasting for the rest of the day counts. That is for somebody who genuinely, completely forgets and accidentally eats or drinks something. Of course, when you remember, let's imagine now somebody in the middle of eating and drinking something, in the middle of that food, remembers their fasting. So now as soon as they remember, they must stop eating and drinking instantly. So they're eating, they're eating, they're eating, in the middle of the food, they remember they're fasting, no more bites now. That's it. What about they're eating, they're eating... They're eating their food, uh, they've forgotten their fasting, so they're having spoonfuls of some cake, and they put a big spoonful of the cake in their mouth, the next big chocolate gato spoon in their mouth, take a couple of bites of it in their mouth, and then they remember. Whilst that's there, they're chewing it up, this chocolate gato, in their mouth, and then they remember. So now what? You must stop, obviously, instantly. You cannot have any more. What about that? What's in your mouth? You're not even allowed to swallow that now. If you've remembered whilst it's in your mouth, you're not allowed to swallow it. If you swallow it now, that means you have now eaten, not forgetfully, on purpose. You remembered and then you still swallowed. That would be purposeful now and your fast breaks. So even that, you must remove it, wash it out, Wash it out, get rid of it. You're not allowed to swallow it after you remember. If you do swallow that one now, you remember it and then you quickly swallow it. You think I can get away with that one no more? That's your fast broken. And you must make up and repent. So that is regarding the one who forgets and eats and drinks. Even if you sit down and have a full three-course meal, at the end of it then you remember. Like it happened one time we went to visit 
in London. There was a, a, some conference going on. We went there. We arrived in the evening. Abu Hakim was there that day, I remember. We got there in the evening and the brothers, the hosts, he was, it was an optional day of fasting. He was doing an optional day of fasting. Or maybe he was making up a day of Ramadan or something. Evening, we arrived about 8 p.m. So they got the food out and everything before the next lecture was going to begin. We all sat down. We all ate. Big food, all the chicken legs and everything was there. Cans of coke and whatever else were there. Everybody was eating away. Finished the meal. The host finished the meal with us. Right at the end, I remember he was about to open up a Pepsi can. Pardon the unhealthy, whatever else, but he was going to open up the Pepsi can. Then he remembered, after finishing all of that food with us, he remembered I was fasting today. So now, put the can down, you're not going to take any sips of that. But everything else you've eaten, genuine forgetfulness, it doesn't impact upon your fast. You carry on, there was barely an hour to go anyway now. You're going to carry on and the day counts, even if you ate that much completely forgot, then it doesn't impact upon your fast, you continue. Final narration we'll mention for today then, hadith of Abu Hurairah, radiyallahu anhu qal, qala rasulullahi sallallahu alayhi wasallam, whomsoever is overcome by vomit, then it doesn't break your fast. But whoever makes themselves vomit, that breaks your fast. So there's a difference now in the vomit. If you make yourself vomit, maybe somebody's fasting and they're feeling really bad. Whatever they ate that day, the day before, it's really causing them a problem. They're fasting, their stomach's hurting. They want to clear it out. So they make themselves vomit either by physically putting their finger in their mouth or something, or, they mentioned this in the books of fiqh, which other ways could you make yourself vomit? By smelling something disgusting, some bad smell, make yourself vomit, or by looking at something disgusting, by looking at some, opening up the, the, your, your garbage bin outside and looking in or something, looking at something disgusting to make yourself vomit. So whoever makes themselves vomit on purpose, that breaks your fast. Broken. You must repent for that and make up that day. But if somebody's genuinely not feeling well, they're just not feeling well and they just end up vomiting. They're not trying to vomit, but they're just feeling really bad and they vomit. That doesn't break your fast. You're genuinely ill, you end up vomiting genuinely, that doesn't break your fast and you can carry on. Unless you're now ill, too ill to carry on, in which case you can break it anyway. But otherwise, if you could carry on, you can carry on and that doesn't break your fast. So that is the basic ruling on vomit. That's where we'll have to stop today. Next session, we'll do the final sections in the chapter, which is the rulings of traveling. What are the rulings with regards to traveling and fasting? Do you have to fast when you're traveling? And when are you allowed to break your fast? Imagine now tomorrow you got your ticket booked for a flight somewhere. One o'clock in the afternoon. Do you have to start fasting in the morning then or not? Do you have to take the suhoor and fast up until one o'clock? Or can you say, well, I got my ticket booked. I'm traveling tomorrow. Definitely. I don't have to fast all day in that case. 
I'm not going to do the suhoor, I'm not going to fast. Which of the two? All of those types of topics we'll discuss next time. And also, the topics regarding the, uh, the, uh, uh, the marital intimacy and affairs that are linked to that. What are the rulings for the fasting person and intimate activity between the spouses? What are the rulings on that? We'll do that. And the final thing also, the ill people. What are the rulings for the ill people who are sick? Those three topics, inshallah, next Saturday, back to the normal time at approximately 8 p.m., 8.15 p.m. next week, inshallah ta'ala. Now as well, whoever's able in Bolton, there's a lecture there, going to start in half an hour. And then there's an iftar, public, open to everyone, everybody's invited. Whoever's able to go there now then, lecture will begin in half an hour. And then after that lecture, there's a, an iftar for everybody in the masjid. Open invite, everybody's uh, able to come, who can come. So whoever can, make your way to Bolton, inshallah ta'ala. We'll conclude there for now then.